Hello, this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And today, we're going to be talking about Valor Station. So, Valor Station is a... Um, treatment center that we are hoping is going to get started up here and this is going to be our discussion today about valor station getting this recovery center started up for first responders and today's guest is cliff richards and uh, i'm just introducing him and i'll let uh, cliff richards explain who he is and what it is that he's doing but cliff is down in augusta georgia and uh valor station came on my radar through the recommendation from a friend, a colleague that I worked with when I was still in the FBI doing peer support. Um, and this this colleague of mine uh, was looking at some of the work that I was doing and said, hey, you need to reach out to these these fine folks down in Georgia and hook up with them and and see how you can contribute uh, with, with their efforts. And uh, I had the opportunity to go down to Georgia to meet with uh, Cliff and, and his staff down there and get a tour of uh, Valor Station. And I got to tell you guys, very impressive project. And it's a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And it's something that is sorely needed today with all that's going on uh, around us. And so with that, uh, Cliff, um, if you will, just tell us who you are and what it is that you do. Okay. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me on here and be able to share about Valor Station, our mission here. Um, Thank you for your support and friendship. But my name is Cliff Richards. I'm a CEO and president of the Hale Foundation. Um, the Hale Foundation is a 30-year-old organization, nonprofit organization in Augusta, Georgia, that was started uh, initially to help men with alcohol and drug addiction. Um, and we have we're entering our 31st year of uh, supporting the community with alcohol and drug addiction, and we're for men only. So we have pro probably an average of 45 to 50 men uh, in a, on a one-year program. Uh, a maximum capacity is 58 men. And we, we do reach our maximum capacity depending on the rotation. But um, we provide uh, housing, food, uh, transportation to and from work, the program, um, for a 12-month period so that these men and, and keep in mind a lot of the men that we deal with come out of the court system so these are some of the worst of the worst really as far as addiction is concerned a lot of our guys are intravenous heroin users opioid users a lot of street drugs and we have seen some amazing amazing things happen when these men get in the proper environment to learn the tools to turn their life around and been thousands of men came through our organization that have have wonderful lives today. So, just give you a little background. Uh, at 25 years old, I took my last drink. So, I just celebrated 43 years of sobriety. And um, oh, congratulations! I was friends with the two founders. Thank yeah. you, thank you. I was friends with the two founders because they were in the 12-step community and followed the program and volunteered over the years uh, down there. And, but my career, uh, 
I had an interesting career in that when I got sober, it's like God gave me an opportunity to start a company uh, painting aircraft. And that that idea that really God gave me uh, turned into a full-blown business that I just retired after 30 years, 2016. So I dealt primarily with uh, the government. I dealt with the Air Force was my only customer. So I traveled all over the country. And so about in 2006, the one of the founders had died uh, that founded the Hale Foundation. The other one was in bad health, and he called me. He said, Cliff, I need you to take over the Hale Foundation. Well, I was kind of like, okay, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. So I said, well, he said, when are you coming in town? And I told him, I said, I'll be there next month. Maybe we could talk. And so my initial goal was to help him find someone in the recovery community that could take over the foundation. And I tell people a lot of times, you know, somehow when, when there's a, when God has a, a, a thing for you to do, it kind of comes in the, the least opportune times. And so I was sitting there in that meeting and, and it's almost like I got a thump on the head, a spiritual thump on the head. It said, you got to do this. Well, I didn't know how, or how I was going to do it. I didn't have any idea. So long story short, I just made a commitment to do it. In 2017, a good friend of mine who was a substance abuse counselor in town, he was a, a dear friend, he and I took over the Health Foundation in 2007, January. And so we started that process, and we've grown uh, to five houses in the downtown community. We have a lot of support from the the judges, probation officers in the community. And so we've had a, a, a really a tremendous uh, facility to help people. So August, August of last year, I got a phone call from a longtime friend of mine who is retired Richmond County deputy. That's the county in our local area here, Richmond County, who had since retired and went to work with the PBA as a rep, the Police Benevolent Association. His name was Patrick Cullerman. And so Patrick had reached out to me because in 2017, we were donated a piece of property by a local benefactor, longtime supporter of our organization that used to be an Episcopal convent here in our, in our local town that was it was built in the 60s, but it was on 20 acres of secluded property, 13,000 square foot facility that was well built. It's a beautiful chapel. And this, the Episcopal nuns, it's the Order of St. Helena, had been there for 60 years. And they had built a new facility and they were trying to sell the property. So we thought it would be an excellent facility to open up a medical substance abuse treatment center in our community to help with the heroin and opioid addiction, which is rampant. And so we were, we met some serious opposition from day one with a local neighborhood that's adjacent to this 20 acres. We went through the process of submitting an application. It was voted down with the county commission. The neighbors didn't want drug addicts running the streets at night, uh, breaking into their homes. It was the 
the stigma that's out there about addiction that's so far from the truth. And we had some serious objections trying to overcome that. So this was about August of last year. Patrick Cullinan called me and said, hey, man, what are y'all going to do with that property? And at that time, I really thought, Mike, we were going to have to sell it because we couldn't get the proper zoning. Right. And, he, and Mike, he, you know, Patrick, as you know, went to work for the Police Benevolent Association. And Patrick has been, he went to treatment 17 years ago while he was a deputy. He was able to come back from treatment, saved his career, and was a much better deputy and ended up retiring. And so his job now, because of his story and his success with the Police Benevolent Association, is to support officers that are in the union when they have substance abuse help. His job is to get them in treatment. So what he found was that, in part, of course, Mike, you and your audience that are in law enforcement certainly understand this, that when you send a professional, law enforcement professional or fire EMS into a civilian treatment centers, the treatment centers will do well for their addiction, but they they don't have the ability or the wherewithal to treat the trauma. It sometimes fuels the addiction. Um, I can tell you that from firsthand experience. That's the case. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So Pat called me and said, man, I have dreamed for years of a first responder, an exclusive first responder treatment center. And my first response was, you mean you guys don't have those all over the country? He said, no, there's not one that's exclusive. And to be honest with you, Mike, I think I told you this. I was blown away that from us outside looking in that I know the states and agencies spend hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars training these professionals, but when they get on the job, there's no support. And I've that's learned, this, yeah, I've learned this, that, and I, and you can, you know, firsthand and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, that when a first responder gets into this career, he is at the top of his game after he finishes the academy or wherever, he's at the top of his game. And it almost like from what I see, the longer they're in this career, it's kind of like the worst they get because of the trauma. And it's almost sad that there's no support. And so when I really started understanding this back in August a year ago, from talking with Patrick, who does a lot of work around the country with law enforcement, and Andy Carrier, who is a 30-year uh, captain with the Georgia State Patrol, who went back and got his degree, and he's a licensed clinical social worker. And so Pat and Andy have, as, as you know, Mike, have been putting on these post-critical incident seminars in Georgia for several years, and they've been doing it on their own. And it's really commendable of them. They would go out and raise money to put on these three or four day events at hotels for law enforcement. And they started wising up and realizing the state needs to be able to support this. So they reached out to Jody Lott, House of Representative leader here, and took her to her first her first PCIS. And she was so moved being a civilian to see what goes on in this 
industry, this career of law enforcement. She was so moved that she went back and the three of them wrote House Bill 703 to create the governor's office of public safety support. And they were, they asked for, I think in that bill, they asked for $1.5 million to set up the office to start supporting officers throughout the state, thinking they would get maybe half of that. Well, it was, it was approved unanimously in the House and the Senate. They were awarded $1.5 million to set up the, at the time as the Governor's Office of Public Safety Support. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so Andy Carrier, being with Georgia State Patrol, he was appointed the director. So it was Andy and Patrick that reached out to me and started telling me the need Okay. And so like, like our organization with substance abuse, we, we really want to be part of the solution. You know, that's, that's the most rewarding thing in the world. And I think that's probably why most people get in law enforcement fire and EMS. They're public servants. They want to be part of a solution for a greater good. So I had Patrick and Andy speak to our board of directors and, and our board of directors were just overwhelmed like me and said, let's, Let's support this thing. Let's see if we can take this facility that we have and refocus it to get our zoning exclusively for law, fire, EMS, and dispatchers. So we're thinking, okay, the neighborhood may have a little better understanding of that. They may have a, a better, you know, approach of letting us come in there. Based on these will be, a lot of these people will still be employed with the agencies. And so, unfortunately, as you know, Mike, we, we fought more opposition from that than we did from the Civilian Treatment Center. So, on August 18th, we had a vote with the county commissioners. It was our final attempt to get this property zoned exclusively for fire, EMS, and dispatch. We had five county commissioners that supported it. We had four that were opposed it, and one commissioner abstained, which made it five for the project, four against, and one abstained. And the purpose of him abstaining was on a 5-5 tie, the mayor could break the vote. So it was a political strategy to get the, the property not zoned. So we were, you know, we were just a little bummed out about that. Walking out of the courthouse that night, I don't know if I told you this, Mike, but on the adjacent corner, there's a huge old historic Presbyterian church. And we were walking through the parking lot, Pat, Andy, and myself. And the dark clouds were coming up. And Mike, out of the blue, this bolt of lightning, we looked at, we saw it. We saw it strike that cross on top of that, on top of that chapel. And it was like sparks and fire and debris flew off that, that cross. And it's almost oh like we looked at each other and said, you know what? That was God's way of saying, okay, I'm still in control. <laughs> wow. So, I mean, that's where we are. We, August 18th, we were denied zoning again. So, we're going to exercise our constitutional right and we're going to file a federal discrimination lawsuit against our city. 
So, so um, Cliff, let me let me get this straight. So the vo- so the vote was what now? What was the final vote? I know it was a tie, uh, yeah. correct? With one okay. one abstaining. So in order for uh, the zoning to get passed, we would have need as ten commissioners. We would have need six, four, and four against. We would need a majority uh, to get it passed. And so they, being that they know the politics, they knew that. They did not want a 5-5 tie because the mayor was a supported it and he would have broke the tie. So one of them had to abstain from voting, which made it a six votes for, four votes against, and one abstained to keep from having a 5-5 tie. Oh, my God. Well, I had to, let me tell you something. I had to ask that same question to our attorney, too. Like, what happened? Did we just win? No, we lost. <laughs> so You know, it's I funny you to- say that, Cliff, because I watched it. I, I actually, uh, so for the listeners that don't know, these, these council meetings are uh, live streamed. You can watch them. Mm-hmm. And I did. And I watched it. Uh, you know, I'm not from Georgia. I'm up here in Washington, D.C., so I don't, I don't understand all of the local politics there and as i watched it they took the vote and i was very confused and i had the same thought i was like wait did they wait a minute did they win did they not win i i didn't understand mm-hmm. it and then it wasn't until i read uh online later that it that it did not pass but that's a real real tricky kind of shady way that they got around that huh it is yeah it, it, it is and so i was telling you earlier and i thought i could make sure of this we because Valor Station started a year ago, the concept of it, um, we have gained a lot of momentum nationwide, okay, a lot of support. Yeah. We appointed an advisory board for Valor Station. And so one of our board members on our advisory board is a longtime first responder. And the night of that vote, when our county commissioners denied that vote, there was horrific car accident in in Augusta where three young males were killed. And this board member, this first responder was one of the first on the scenes. And he posted on our supporters of Valor Station. So I might have put a plug in here. Any of you that want to support us, if you would go to supporters of Valor Station Facebook page and follow us, we'll put on, we're putting all the information that you the upcoming things that are going on with Valor Station. But he he uh, posted a post the next morning on our supporters page talking about that horrific incident. And being that he's a longtime career first responder, he he was thankful he had the, the tools to deal and mitigate that trauma instead of using, you know, maladaptive ways as far, you know, such as drinking or alcohol. He had ways to deal with that trauma, but still he said that those faces of those three young guys um, were were in the forefront of his thoughts the whole night, the next day. And, you know, and it just really upset me that, you know, these are people that we're trying to help in our local community and they desperately need it. And it's, it's to me, it, I don't know, it's almost inhumane not to want to help them. And so I just, we wanted to let our supporters know that Valor Station is going to happen somehow, some way. We're not going away. 
we're going to file this lawsuit. We're going to the Superior Court to see if we can get our judges to overturn it. I mean, it's just not right what they're doing. No, it's not. And, and Cliff, the, the timing of all this with what has been going on in the last three or four months in the country can't be helping, could it? Yeah. I mean, that it's just it, – I, I – have a hard time uh, particularly watching the hearing the way that I did and hearing some of the comments that that were being made by the people that are opposing this project. Mm -hmm. I have to believe that what is going on nationally is having a negative effect on moving Valor Station forward. And um, it, it's criminal to me what's going on. What we are doing to our first uh, responders, particularly our police, is despicable. And this is something that we as a nation are going to regret down the road. You know, 20 years from now, when the history books are written about this period in our history, we're going to really be ashamed of a lot of what we are doing and uh, the way that we are treating the people that uh, are are here to help us. And and this this reminds me, I'm going to circle back on something that, that you said earlier. And I had written, I've written an article about this and, and uh, talk about it in uh, a class that I've taught called leading at risk, leading at risk employees. It, you touched on something and that's that, you know, when we go through training and I, I've been through military training, you know, I've been through boot camp. Mm -hmm. I went through flight school in the Navy. Uh, mm -hmm. I went through a police Academy in Washington, DC, and then the FBI Academy. I've been through a lot of training, a lot of training, and we learn how to handcuff and shoot and fight and do criminal investigations and fly airplanes mm -hmm. and all those things. Those are great things. But, you know, the one thing, the one bit of training I never received in all of my years that I've been working, not once did I receive a class to prepare me uh, or to teach me how to take care of myself when I would, when I became exposed to what I, what I became exposed to in my career, the traumatic experiences, the constant constant trauma that is put you know things that if the an average american or an average person for that matter was exposed to once or twice in their life they would be damaged for the rest of their lives but you're not exposed to it once or twice you're exposed to it every single day you go to work and i received zero training on how to take care of my myself in all that time and so here you are uh trying to provide a um uh, a facility, Valor Station, which is not only dealing with addiction, oh, and we didn't even touch on this, that you guys are planning on uh, working with uh, PTSD situations as well. Um, here we are having the first of its kind in the nation, and you can't get it passed because the city council will not approve it. And um, so, Cliff, what, what were some of the arguments? Why don't we talk about some of the arguments that these folks had against Valor Station and why they don't think that it should happen? Okay, so initially, with our first uh, application for a civilian treatment center, initially their main objection was, we don't want drug addicts and alcoholics roaming the streets. Well, you know and I know that if a, if a, if a person voluntarily goes into a treatment center and let's say he leaves AMA. He, he's not hanging around. He's gone. That's, that's against, oh, by the way, AMA is against medical oh, advice. Yeah. yeah. Right. So he's not going to hang around and, you know, go in people's yards. I mean, he's going to be out of there. And so that was just like a, a, that was an uneducated reason. And in, in my opinion, the other reason was traffic flow. 
And I certainly understand that because you have to go through the subdivision to get to the entrance of this 20 acres. So on the opposite side of our property, there's a street called Augusta Tech Drive, which is the entrance to the Augusta Technical College. Which is on the other side of the facility, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's correct. And so the there's a portion of that driveway that's owned by the state. The other portion is owned by the Board of Education. And so just so you'll know, there's Board of Education board members that totally were against us. And there was one that wrote an article in the uh, Sunday paper here, the local paper, the name of our organization is the Hale, H-A-L-E Foundation, which was the family name of Samuel Hale Sibley, the founder. But he referred to the Hale Foundation as the Hale, H-E-L-L Foundation, multiple times in this article. And he's a member of wow. the Board of Education. So our thinking was there was a short piece of Augusta Tech Drive near the point of our uh, where our property intersects. Um, Augusta Tech, that we could get an easement from the state to grant us an easement to get access from that side of our property, which would close off the original entrance, which would overcome any objection of traffic. And so now with the first responders, we felt like, okay, we're addressing the type of people that are coming. probably been, I don't know, maybe some court-ordered people, but mainly alcohol and drug addicts in the uh, civilian treatment uh, Hey, Cliff, it, it sounds like we're kind of initially. losing you on the Wi-Fi. So with the first, we have a whole demographic of people that are going to be coming in for treatment, thinking that would help too, which it didn't. Objection is, okay. Yeah, I just want to make sure we don't lose you on the call. Okay. So there were some still objections with alcohol and drug addiction, and that was mainly their main concern. But here's the the real crux of the thing. In that neighborhood, there was a state senator, mom and dad lived there. Um, And so this is became political. is an African-American Democrat senator, and his, he was totally against us from the very beginning. And so because of his political influence throughout the county, he has been the one gaining, trying to gain support to block us. So when we went to the, the, the state to get this easement, we had a House of Representative member from Columbia County, the adjacent county, come into Richmond County to help with this easement. The political, I mean, the uh, Democratic delegation were up in arms about it, telling her she needs to stay out of their county. And so that was kind of the beginning of the real opposition. It's political and it's racial. And unfortunately, you know, we're not, I mean, First responders, that's a, it's a demographic, demographic where there's 
there's white and blacks. And so it's not about race. See what I mean? No, it's not. No, it's not. And the, you know, when I watch the live stream, and this is just sick to me, Cliff. It's just sick. The connotation in the the live stream was that this was going to be supporting white police officers. Mm-hmm. Well, not all police officers are white. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, I believe down there in Atlanta, that's actually the opposite is the case. And you know, it, it this is this is helping. You know, we need to stop. We need to stop this racial stuff. We got to stop it, right? This is to help people. It's not to help white officers, black officers, or gay officers, or straight officers, or Asian officers, or female officers. This is about helping people, and this is absolutely necessary. And um, this is really just this antagonism sure. that people have towards one another has got to end. So we can get the people that the help that we need, and um, it's just a shame that that's happened. It and is. what? So, what do you? What's your prognosis on this? What? How do you think that this is going to end? What? What's looking out into the future? What do you see? Guys, that's a good question, Mike. Um, let me let me just make this comment about the racial aspect. The first responder that had posted that post about being the first on the scene with those three deaths, he's an African-American first responder that's on our board. And so we, we, you know, we just, we overcome all objections that they have, but still they're not, they're not willing to look at it. But I I did want to mention that. So, um, you know, it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen because it's like so many things have happened from the from August of last year, Mike, and I think I mentioned this to you when you came down, that this thing is almost, it's, you could see God's hand in it from day one. And let, let me tell you this. So Patrick, in August of last year, he I think it was right after he and I first started talking, he flew out. I don't know if you remember last, last year they had the El Paso Walmart shooting. Pat... Yeah. yeah, I do. I do remember that. Pat yep. flew out there first of August or toward the end of August to deal with those first responders. Okay. And so while he was out there, he started talking about what we're doing in Augusta, what's coming. And so fast forward about February, we get a call from uh, Lieutenant Randy Sutton, who's a retired Las Vegas Metro officer. Randy had start had started after he retired. He got so disgruntled with agencies how well, the, the way they were treating officers after critical incidents, shootings, whatever. Um, they they a lot of times the workman's comp wouldn't pay them. Uh, while they were off, they were using their vacation time to pay them. And those a lot of these guys ended up losing losing their careers and became destitute. And Randy got so upset with it, he started an organization called The Wounded Blue. And his mission is to help lawmen, law officers, with mental health and treatment. Okay. So when he heard what we were doing last January, we talked several times on the phone, and he said, I got to come see Valor Station. There's nothing on the West Coast like it. So Patrick and I, no, there's not, there's not Patrick and I and Andy flew him out and gave him a tour. And he just, man, he was overwhelmed. 
and we talked and strategized how both of our organizations would be able to work together. It would be a good thing. And so he was leaving the next morning. We took him out to dinner and we're sitting at dinner. This was in February. Okay. Pat gets a call from Texas and it was a police chief, Texas out there. This brother was a Texas Ranger. And Pat said, I got to take this call. So he leaves the table and comes back a few minutes later and says, you ain't going to believe this. He said, that was so-and-so. He said, he told me he has a ranger that's in crisis. He's suicidal and he's drinking. And he says, we're getting ready to put him on a plane and ask another trip. Another eight, uh, ranger is going to escort him to Ballard Station. <laughs> now that was February. Pat said, oh man, no, we're not even open. <laughs> that was he can come but, yeah. but we're not open yet and so he said well i've seen your page i thought y'all were he said no man we're still trying to get this thing open long story short pat was able to help him so pat asked me to go up to columbia south carolina to see, he was going to speak to the uh sheriff's chaplain association for the state of south carolina and eric skidmore is the the guy that runs that so we're sitting eating lunch that day, and Eric says, Cliff, I'm going to tell you something. He says, when you get up and running, everyone from the state of South Carolina, I'm sending it to you. But on the way up there, listen to this, on the way up there, this is what blew me away and really got me plugged in, Mike, to seeing this thing is real. On the way up there, Pat gets a phone call in his car. We're riding together. And uh, it's a guy named Jim Banish who's over the uh, New York Law Enforcement uh, Association. And so Jim calls and says, Pat, man, I hear what you guys are doing in Augusta. It's awesome. And Pat says, um, oh, well, I got Cliff Richards with me now. We're running up to Columbia. Let me introduce you. So we talked for a minute. And Jim said this, Mike. He said, Cliff, how many beds do you have at Valor Station? I said, we have about 30, 32 he says, not enough. He said, New York will fill up 30 beds. Yeah. And that was it. I mean, he said, we'll fill up 30 beds in a minute. And so Pat and Andy go back up there several months later because Andy is a clinical director for New York Leap. Okay. And uh, they go up a couple months later and Pat calls me. He says, man, this is the talk up here. He said, NYPD guys are saying, man, when are you guys getting up and running? I'm telling you, you know this, Mike. The guys are dying out there. Oh, yeah. I, uh, Cliff, I get I get calls every week yeah. uh, from from people that need help. And I you know, they're they're asking me for advice on where they should go. And and I there are some good treatment centers. There's right. there's a couple that I recommend up here in the DC area, mm -hmm. but they're not what we're we're talking about. We're it, it's not it's not centered on the special circumstances that that first responders go through um there are good facilities out there but this is this is absolutely necessary and that's why it blew my mind when i went down there the amount of opposition that there was now, now keep in mind it didn't help that that whole atlanta situation over the summer yeah. it just happened in right. fact i think it was uh, a couple three weeks prior to when i came down uh, and that doesn't have you know the politics is getting involved in this sure. and um you know 
Hey, you know, Cliff, as far as I'm concerned, you know, if politics is the way it's going to be, then then politics is the the the, the next move. Sure. And that is that that this what happened, what's happening right now with Valor Station in the opposition to make this very necessary facility move forward. You know what? If if politicians want to stop it, well, then I guess they don't mind that this this gets out to the public and let the public see how our first responders are being treated. Sure. And let's see if the public's okay with yeah, that. that may, let's see if the public's okay with that. That may make a big difference election time. Yeah. And, and politicians need to understand this. This is not about um, whatever special interests you have or some sort of an axe that you have to grind. This is necessary. These are people, and these are the people that, that are working every single day to protect you and I mm-hmm. from the harm that's out there and the crime that's out there. And we owe it. It is a moral obligation to help these people. I agree 100%. And you asked the question, what is my you know, long-range thoughts of what's going to happen. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. And so how the how is up to God. You know, I'm just going to leave it up to him because this thing has just had so much movement and outside support that it's just, it's just going to happen somewhere, somehow. I hope it's on that property, but we've even been approached by the neighboring county, neighboring county, the county administrator reached out to Patrick the night of the vote when he was watching it on Zoom and says, man, I, I can't understand why y'all denied. He said this, and the neighboring county, a county to us, Columbia County, is a growing county, probably the fastest growing county in Georgia. And he told us, he says, you sell that property, you come to Columbia County, we'll welcome you with open arms. So there's options out there for us. And so we don't know what, at this time, what those options really are, which ones we need to pursue. But, you know, it's like anything else in time, we'll know. But, uh, yeah, it's been a fight. I've been fighting with them three years on this zoning, and it's just, it's kind of hard to believe. Well, uh, if anybody is out there listening to this that has influence in the the local government down there, bring that influence on, uh, I personally believe that this should be brought to the national level and uh, let's have a discussion about it. Let's have a debate about it. And uh, this is going to be part of a debate, a, a larger debate on how we treat our first responders. You know, we, uh, we are not treating our military well. We are not treating our first responders well. And, and a lot of this has to do with a lack of understanding in the community in general about addiction. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe this is just a way to, to get the highlight, the whole issue of addiction in general. And by the way, it's not just first responders. You know, everything that we've had going on, you know, this year with the pandemic and with all the riots and, and everything else that's going on has really driven. This has been this has been devastating to the the recovery community. To everybody. I mean, we don't have 12-step meetings going on. We don't have face-to-face meetings. You know, people are not able to go to treatment centers. Uh, and that's not just for first responders. That's anybody. Um, you can't get into detoxes. And this is, uh, is going to have very, very damaging long-term effects. And someday, somebody is going to do a whole PhD study on the what what happened to people that, that are in recovery or need to be in recovery during this period of time. And we are not going to be happy with what we find out. That's my prediction. I agree hundred percent. And, and just like you said, I'm glad you mentioned that if anyone listening has any connections politically on a national level, 
I think this is where we need to take it, Mike, like you and I talked. I mean, this, this need, needs to get out there that we're meeting this kind of opposition to help in such a wonderful segment of our country. And, of course, you know, I, I just think that that would help. Well, I, I tell you, I'm going to continue that fight. I absolutely am. And um, and so, Cliff, what we'll do is we'll wrap up for today, and I and I want to do another session with you, if that's okay. Would you be able to do another oh, session sure, with us sure. and, and talk to us some more? Glad to. You know that. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, Cliff, I really have enjoyed our, our discussion today, and um, and I hope that this, this whole discussion just serves as a call of action for everybody that's out there that we need to do some more about this. And if you have any influence, if you have any buddy that that can help with the the uh Val, with valor station down in, in augusta georgia and get this thing pushed through so we can open this this facility up to help people the 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 numbers are there the people that are there we have people that need to get help now they don't need it down the road they need it right now and we need to open this facility up sooner rather than later and so let's let's just collectively as a community start putting pressure on the folks that are down there and and help this thing get started because it absolutely is necessary and it's long overdue mm -hmm. and cliff we really appreciate all the work that you do and god bless you so much and um, so, as always, I'd like to say that I, I don't represent any group. Um, I do not represent anyone other than than myself when it comes to recovery. My only purpose is giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and it might help you too. So if I've said anything or Cliff has said anything today that does not apply to you or you don't agree with, then just just, just discard it. But try to take any information that you can use for yourself and help others as well. That's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way. And we help to impart the knowledge we've gained uh, to others as well. So with that, please visit our Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, and our website, VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. Also check out Valor Station on uh, Facebook if you get a chance. And let me know how we're doing and let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in. I'd love to hear from you and take care and we will see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>